Good evening. Good evening, everyone. I'm Wally Verdorn, and I serve as the Director of Development here at the Oriental Institute. Welcome to another monthly members lecture here at the OI. And I also want to welcome all of those who are joining us online via live streaming today. Uh, greetings to all our virtual fans of, middle, of ancient Middle Eastern studies, uh, wherever you may be in the world at this time. Uh, tonight's lecture is also particularly special because during the OI centennial year currently underway, we have been featuring several of the OI's own prominent scholars as keynote speakers. And today, we are pleased and privileged to have Mar Martha Roth as our lecturer, who many of you already know very well. Uh, we'll have a more formal introduction of Martha in just a moment, but I also want to express my thanks to all the OI members who are here with us tonight. The annual and ongoing support from our members make possible programs like our monthly lecture series and also provide resources to the pioneering research and discovery that still is being led today by current OI faculty and researchers. If you're not a member yet, consider joining and supporting all the scholarly adventures at the OI. And so now, let's get our lecture program started, and I'm pleased to call to the podium Christopher Woods, the John A. Wilson Professor and Director of the Oriental Institute, who will introduce today's speaker. Thank you so much, Wally, and thank you all for coming out as our centennial year of members' lectures uh, continues. Um, it's a very special honor for me to introduce my close colleague and friend, the OI's own Martha Roth. Martha is the Chauncey S. Butcher Distinguished Service Professor of Assyriology in the Oriental Institute, the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, and the College. Martha is one of the world's foremost scholars of the legal and social history of the ancient Near East. Her primary research interests are family law and women's legal and social issues and the compilation and transmission of law, law norms. Martha joined the University of Chicago faculty in 1980 as assistant professor after a one-year uh, research associateship in the OI. Martha came directly to Chicago from the University of Pennsylvania, where she received her, PH, her PhD after having previously received her BA from Case Western Reserve University. Martha has published extensively on nearly every aspect of social and legal justice in Mesopotamia and the broader ancient Middle East. And here I would single out her law codes for Mesopotamia and Asia Minor, which was first published in 1995 and has gone through several subsequent editions. It's, I would point out, one of the very few books that sits on the bookshelf of nearly every scholar in our fields as it brings together for the first time all the law collections of the ancient Middle East written in Sumerian, Babylonian, Assyrian, and Hittite, and covering a, a vast temporal spread from the end of the third millennium to the middle of the first millennium BCE. Martha has two further books in the field of Mesopotamian law in preparation, Law Cases for Mesopotamia, for the SBL Writings from the Ancient World series, and Violence in Mesopotamia. 
Martha has received grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the American Council of Learned Societies, and she sits on the boards of the Demos Foundation, the Newberry Library, and the Seminary Co-op Bookstores. And of course, the name Martha Roth is not only synonymous with Mesopotamian law in our field, but also with the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary, or CAD, which beyond being one of the landmark defining projects of the OI, which was one of the greatest humanistic endeavors of the 20th and early 21st centuries. When Martha first came to the university as a research associate, it was to work on the CAD. She would rise to associate editor in 1987 and then editor in charge in 1996. For those of you not familiar with the CAD, hard to believe, um, it's a, a comprehensive dictionary of the various dialects of Akkadian, which includes Babylonian and Assyrian over the course of nearly two and a half thousand years. But the term dictionary doesn't give it justice. Similar to what the Oxford English Dictionary is to English, it's a cultural encyclopedia that describes an entire civilization through the lens of its lexicon, biographies of words. Initiated in 1921 by James Henry Breasted, the founder of the OI, it took 90 years to complete. As editor in charge, Martha oversaw the editing and publication of the five final volumes of the CAD, shepherding this massive 90-year, 26-volume project to completion in 2011. And then there's Martha's exceptional service to the university. She's chaired and served on too many important committees for me to mention, so I'll simply note the two major roles she's served in university administration. From 2004 to 2007, Martha served as deputy provost for research and education, during which time her portfolio included all cross-unit curricular matters, the library, the press, and academic appointments. And then from 2007 to 2016, Martha served as dean of the Division of the Humanities. During her tenure as dean, she expanded the division's faculty, leading the recruitment of more than 110 new faculty members. She established the Department of Cinema and Media Studies, launched new PhD programs, and played a critical role in establishing the Neubauer Collegium for Culture and Society, the Center for Jewish Studies, the Carla Shearer Center for the Study of American Culture, and strengthened digital humanities and graduate student aid, among many other accomplishments. Finally, I'm not in the habit of adding personal reflections in these introductions, but I feel compelled to do so in Martha's case. Martha has been a major part of my life and my family's life since coming to Chicago many years ago now. When I first walked into this building for the very first time, it was Martha who greeted me as a member of the search committee in the lobby, uh, the search committee that hired me. My wife, Jenny, worked with Martha for three years as research associate on the final volumes of the CAD. Martha was there in the hospital when our first son was born. And Martha served on the committee that re viewed me as an assistant professor. She was the dean that gave me tenure. She chaired the committee that promoted me to full professor. 
Throughout it all, from fledgling assistant professor to director, I've relied on Martha as mentor, confidant, and most importantly, friend. So with that, please join me in welcoming my friend and our colleague, Professor Martha Roth. Believe it or not, I feel speechless now. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you, Chris, for that really beautiful and uh, very generous introduction. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, and I want to make sure I have the right thingies here. Okay, so let me back up a tad. There we go. All right. So, thank you. Um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The biblical quote stands in both the popular and scholarly mind as the ultimate expression of ancient law, vengeful, exact to a terrible fault, absolute, and more than anything else to us, primitive. It is cited in the literature as a legal axiom, reflecting the assumption that it was legal practice as well as legal principle. It is, however, as even a moment's thought reveals, completely unworkable as a system. A quote attributed to Gandhi illustrates the problem nicely. An eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. Actually, the quote comes from Ben Kingsley in the movie, but um, it works. Now, over the decades, the principle of lex talionis, the law of retaliation, epitomized by an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, has returned again and again in my work on Mesopotamian law. I've struggled with how to understand what the passages meant to the ancient peoples, with what the passages tell us today about ancient law, and with how legal thinkers approach bodily injuries, negligence, and talion. Most recently, as my work has focused on judicial violence, how and to what ends are physical pain and violence employed by authorities in the interests of the larger society, I've turned to the place of the head in Mesopotamian legal practice, to veiling, hair cutting, beard pulling, scarifying, piercing, nose severing, lip slicing, cheek slapping, and hence the talionic eye for an eye, uh, tooth for a tooth, forms an ever larger problem for me. In fact, I have come to see talion as the entry into this whole larger question about the head in law. In this evening's um, presentation, I'm going to do a few things. This is just a little roadmap for you. I'm going to draw your attention first to some texts from ancient Mesopotamia in which the head figures prominently. I'll then give a summary of punishments in ancient Mesopotamia to contextualize the law of Talion. Um, and then I'm going to turn to the Talionic laws themselves. I'm going to present them to you with the evidence in chronological order, which is not the order in which history has known of these, but I will present them you with the Talionic laws from ancient Mesopotamia, with nods, of course, to their expressions in the Hebrew Bible, the Roman 12 tables, the New Testament, the Quran, and early barbaric law. 
We'll review then some of the thinking about Talion by scholars from the Jewish and Christian traditions, by Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment legal thinkers, and enter the 20th and 21st century scholarship. And then I'll wrap it all up by going back to the idea of the head again and thinking about the Talion, why the Talionic laws are so centrally located on the head. So let me begin with a quote from a letter in which a head figures prominently. This letter dates to the early 18th century BC and comes from the ancient city of Mari in modern Syria, just north of the Iraq border. A military commander writes to admit to the king that all of his efforts to muster the troops promised by allies have not been successful. And he writes, for the past five days, I've waited for the nomads at the prearranged place, but the troops are just not gathering. The nomads have indeed come here from pasturing the flocks, but they stay in diverse or various towns. I've written a couple of times to the towns themselves. They were summoned, but they have not gathered yet. If then, within three days, they do not gather, and if my lord agrees, a criminal should be killed in jail, his head should be cut off, it should be paraded among the towns as far as Khutnum and Apan, so that the frightened troops will quickly gather. Now, even today, some 4,000 years later, from our remote time, place, and culture, the intended meaning of the gesture is obvious. A public parading of a severed head sends shock, fear, and anxiety through the populace. The message is, obey or else. And of course, the or else is, or else suffer the same consequences, have your head chopped off. So why the head? Seems obvious, but the head is just one part of the body. And yet it is the powerful expression, the synecdoche for the whole person. Let me cite another example that reinforces this question, a literary text from about 1,200 years later that draws attention to the rampant injustice and a return to the rule of law, probably under the reign of the Babylonian king Nabonidus or Nebuchadnezzar. A litigant who defied a judgment and persisted in reopening his case was beheaded and in order to send a powerful message to the population at large, long after the decaying of the flesh and blood head, the king ordered that a stone replica be made of the offender's head and that an inscription be written on the head and the facsimile then be placed and displayed on the gates of the law court. The inscription on the stone head was to read, a man whose case has been judged the tablet of his verdict has been written, and who afterwards altered the sealing of the document and returned for a new judgment, his head is to be chopped off just like this one. Now the king knew that whether or not his audience could read the inscription on the head, the displayed head itself, either the physical flesh and blood head or its stone replica, would send fear through the population and impart a message of the king's might and justice. These two references introduce my general organizing question. How the head and its parts, the hair, eyes, nose, mouth, lips, tongue, ears, throat, are all represented and how they are used in the legal context of crimes and punishments. This is not a question unique to Mesopotamia, of course, but operates through and beyond Mesopotamia's heirs as seen in Western philosophical traditions mediated through the Hebrew, Christian, and Islamic scriptures, in which the head and especially the face serve to signal human relationships and encounters of the other and the self. In Western thought, the head is the locus of intellectual thought, of memory, 
and even of emotions, though all these may also be located elsewhere in the body in different traditions. The head is simultaneously unique to a single individual and paradigmatic of all people. It is the site of ornamentation and individualization, hairstyles, wigs, makeup, masks, all of these will alter your face and make it unique to you. These might be the very first indicators of who you are to yourself when you look in the mirror and to others when you encounter them. We adorn the head with hairstyles, makeup, tattoos, in order to make ourselves distinctive and identifiable in a crowd. At the same time, the head is the exclusive site of the organs involved in sensory perception, sight in the eyes, taste in the mouth, smell in the nose, hearing in the ears, even touch, while more generalized throughout the body, is most sensitive on the lips and tongue. The head is covered as a gesture of humility or servility by both men who wear the skull cap, the fez, the keffiyeh, and women who wear a veil, a shaitel, a hijab. The head is a prominent site for permanent tattoos, piercings, and scarifications, mutilations that might be placed anywhere on the body, but attain particular visibility and impact on the head and face. And body hair on the head and face lends itself to temporary but distinctive marking as well as ornamentation through shaving, curling, and treatment of head hair, beards, mustaches, even eyebrows. For all these reasons and many more, Inflicting judicial punishments on or in the region of the head may be a particularly powerful way to amplify the consequences or the ramifications of a punishment. So now to understand Talion, it's necessary to take a moment to think about different ways punishments were applied in ancient Mesopotamia and to try to put to one side modern categorizations of offenses such as crime and tort, public and private, state and religious. In general, in Mesopotamia, as in any legal system anywhere, some remedies, are addressed, uh, some remedies will address a society's need for social, emotional, or psychological closure in that they satisfy the impulse for vengeance or the intention to deter future harms, and other remedies will address an individual's need for social or material compensation or restoration. In punishments, we find three types in the Mesopotamian law collections and in the functional court documents, each with several subtypes. But let me just give you a quick outline. Pecuniary or, I'm sorry, went too far. Pecuniary or monetary or in-kind payments, replacements and fines, which might be set at specified amounts or at particular scales or multiples. For example, from the laws of Hammurabi, if an awilum, a uh, man of full status, cuts down a tree in an awilum's date orchard without permission of the owner of the orchard, he shall weigh out and deliver 30 shekels of silver. Here we see an apparently straightforward situation in which both parties are of the same social status, the awilum class. One party causes financial harm, the cutting down of somebody's tree, and the remedy is set at an absolute amount. Of course, left unarticulated and not considered are all sorts of factors. There's no mention of procedure, what kind of evidence is brought forth. There's no mention of motive. There's no mention of any details. Why did the offender cut down the tree? Was it harming his own property? Had he asked the owner to prune it and cut it back when the owner had refused? Did he do it stealthily at night or did he and deny responsibility? Or did he do it openly and bring witnesses with him to watch him do it? 
What if the tree is a young sapling or a fully established tree? Now, it turns out that a date palm, for those of you who do not live on date um, fields and date orchards, a date tree produces about 22 pounds of fruit when it's five to eight years old and 175 to 200 pounds of fruit when it's matured about 15 years. And date palms can live and produce fruit for well over 100 years. So it makes a big difference how old that tree was that got cut down. There should be a very big difference if the offender cut down a two-year-old or 70-year-old tree. Another example will show you how laconic the laws are. If an ox gores an ox and causes its death, the two ox owners shall divide the value of the living ox and the carcass of the dead ox. Again, this expresses an ideal of what we call loss distribution, by which the remedy, the dividing of the value of the living and the dead oxen, um, by which the remedy intends to assign no responsibility, but seeks to restore each party to his own situation. At first glance, this seems to work. The two owners share the loss burden. But in practice, of course, the owner of the more valuable animal, probably the surviving ox, um, may find himself undercompensated, while the owner of the less valuable animal, the dead animal, may come out ahead. Again, the law gives us no indication of the values of the animals, the circumstances under which the goring occurred, etc. Now I'm going to turn now to corporal punishments. These may result in causing temporary pain by such things as flogging or permanent disfiguration or mutilation. For example, if an awilam causes a finger to be pointed in accusation against an ugbabtum priestess or against an awilam's wife but does not bring proof, they shall flog that man in the presence of the judges and shave off half his hair. Here we see that the offender suffers a public flogging, which has elements of both physical pain as well as public humiliation, amplified by the disfigurement of the shaving. Neither the flogging nor the shaving necessarily results in permanent mutilation, however. Now, the offense and remedy in this provision do not seem to bear any relationship to one another, but clear lines are drawn between the two in other instances. For example, Sympathetic punishments echo a salient part of the offense. So in the example still on the screen, a sympathetic punishment would be something like, if an awilam causes a finger to be pointed in accusation, dot, 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 they will chop off his finger. Maybe also flog him and shave him. We see this sort of sympathetic punishment where the offending um, uh, body part or other uh, factor is targeted in the remedy, we see this often in Mesopotamian laws. For example, if a son should strike his father, they shall cut off his hand. Or if the son of a Gersakum courtier or the son of a Sekretum woman should say to the father who raised him or the mother who raised him, you are not my father, you are not my mother, they shall cut out his tongue, the offending organ. Similarly, in a letter from old Babylonian Mari, an unsubstantiated accusation or false testimony draws attention to the mouth, again, the source or locus of the troubling occurrence. This matter is not for litigating or for forgiving. At the door of the temple, his witness will smash dirt on his head. At the spot where this word came out from his mouth, a peg will be driven into his mouth. Here we find clear indications of sympathetic punishments in which the offending part, the hand or tongue or mouth, is targeted in the remedy. A variant of this is talion, an eye for an eye. 
in which it is not the offending part, but the actual harm that is remedied. For example, if an awilam should blind the eye of an awilam, they shall blind his eye. Now, we're going to be turning, of course, to these bodily injuries and talionic remedies in a couple of minutes, but let me move on quickly to our summary of the third category of punishments, um, the death penalties. And I do want to remind you that the head and its parts may also feature prominently in a variety of punishments, not only talion. So earlier when we saw that the false accuser suffered a partial shaving of his head or facial hair, for example. So this third category is capital punishment or death. The death penalty is, by certain ways of thinking, obviously, the ultimate remedy for a major violation of the social order. If a man, Lu, commits a homicide, they shall kill that man. Now, among the features of this law I want to point out are, first, that again, we have no idea of the circumstances under which the homicide occurred. Provocation, ambush, self-defense, nothing is told to us. And second, in the penalty, we do not know how the offender is to be executed, what the means of execution is to be, nor by whom is he to be executed. Although I have argued recently that it is the next of kin who has the responsibility to perform the execution, probably by decapitation. But I also want to point out for the sumerologists in the room, and there are many of you here, I know, that the term I translated here as commits a homicide is sag gish ra, the component parts of which could be understood literally to mean to beat the head with a stick. Sometimes the fatal remedy is linked to the offense, as in the sympathetic non-fatal punishments we just saw. But here's a fatal one. If a guard is negligent in guarding a house and a burglar breaks into the house, they shall kill the guard of the house that was broken into. He shall be buried at the very breach without a grave. Or, if a fire breaks out in an Awilam's house, and an Awilam who came to help extinguish it covets the household furnishings belonging to the householder, and takes household furnishings belonging to the householder, that Awilam shall be cast into that very fire. Or this one, if the farm overseer who misappropriated cattle and has been sentenced to a fixed fine um, is not able to satisfy the fixed fine, his obligation, they shall drag him around through the very field by tying him to the cattle. In all these provisions, a contemporary jurist would look for a breach of trust, perhaps, or abuse of powers and position. And that might well be a motivating factor in the sympathetic punishment, something that I am still exploring. There's at least one document that reflects a real-life situation, not, in other words, an abstract legal rule, as in many of the examples, that is a terrific example for you of a sympathetic death penalty. It's very problematic, but it's great. An old Babylonian letter records the king's reply to a query about what to do in an unusual situation. And this is the whole letter. Because they threw the boy into the oven, you throw the slave into the kiln. Now, this looks like it's very parallel, but do note that there are some problems. The terms for boy and slave are different. The terms for the oven and kiln are different. So it's not a precise sympathetic punishment, but it surely has um, the echoes of one to my mind. And finally, there are capital punishments that simply lack a, a sympathetic element, but that are very dramatic and public. 
So if a woman whose husband is a prisoner of war but who also left her sufficiently provided for does not, if that woman does not keep herself chaste but enters another's household, they shall charge and convict the woman and cast her into the water. There was no water in her offense. Or if the wife of an awilam has her husband killed because of her relationship with another male, they shall impale that woman. Or if an awilam after the death of his father should lie with his mother, they shall burn them both. Now these sorts of particularly public and dramatic executions, impaling, throwing from a tower, throwing into the water, burning, are almost exclusively reserved for sexual offenses. And it may be possible that in at least some circumstances there is a sympathetic element to these punishments as well, as in uh, impaling the woman who willingly was penetrated by a man, not her husband. Now, it's important uh, for me to reiterate some points as we wrap up this summary of punishments. First, although the formulations in the law collections are terse, if a man does X, he suffers Y. In every instance, the applicability and the severity of any punishment will be scaled up or down by at least two factors, by the status of the offender and of the victim, whether they are free or enslaved, male or female, palace or temple, private, etc., and by extenuating factors such as the location, whether the offense was out in the open or in secret, and intention and accident. All this brings us again to a central problem of punishments and of talion in particular. Why in the ancient law collections are particular offenses remedied in some circumstances by physical bodily punishments, while other offenses, sometimes even the same offenses, are remedied in other circumstances by monetary payments? And what, if anything, does that difference, corporal punishment versus monetary compensation, tell us about society, culture, and law? For two millennia, lex talionis, the eye for an eye rules, have dominated this discussion, captured public attention, and influenced legal historians' views of the development of law. So let's turn our attention now to the bodily injury offenses themselves and those bodily injuries that demand talion. Talion, and um, in Mesopotamia, um, oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> As we begin um, the discussion, I'm going to um, present these um, evidence, pieces of evidence to you in chronological order. From the early second millennium uh, BC until the first centuries AD. I'm going to um, stick with uh, remedies to direct bodily harms, and I am not this evening going to discuss at all the vicarious talionic provisions involving harm to a pregnant woman and her fetus. These provisions are entangled with talion in part because of a passage in Exodus 21, which I will refer to briefly, and Middle Assyrian laws. So I'm not going to talk about the harm to the pregnant woman at all. Okay. Now, there are four law collections from the ancient Near East that include provisions dealing with bodily injuries. Sometimes bodily injuries are remedied by model monetary compensation and sometimes by expressions of talion. The four collections are in Sumerian, Babylonian, and Hittite. 
They date over the span of six to 800 years from the end of the third millennium BC for the Sumerian law collection of Ornama to the early second millennium BC for the two Babylonian collections known as the laws of Eshnunna and the laws of Hammurabi and to the mid 15th century BC and later for the Hittite laws. So in chronological order, we're gonna start with the laws of Ornama. Bodily injuries are resolved according to our earliest law collection, the 22nd century BC laws of Ornama, by payments in the amounts ranging from two shekels to 60 shekels, or a full mina, um, in one instance also by flogging. In no case is a bodily injury offense remedied by talion. The body parts discussed are not always clear to us, although we can identify the nose, eye, and, and tooth. Um, in Sumerian, the words for nose and tooth are represented by the same sign, and it's not always easy to figure out what's going on. And the circumstances of the injuries are, as far as I can tell in these laws, qualified by whether or not the offender used a tool or weapon of some sort or only his bare hands. The publication in 2011 of a major new manuscript of the laws of Ornama by our late colleague Miguel Seville significantly altered our understanding of these provisions, or at least my understanding of the provisions, um, and has demanded a revision to the edition that I myself published some years ago. There are eight provisions that refer to bodily injuries in uh, the laws of Ornama, including breaking or severing or permanently compromising the some bone or other, the nose, the eye, and the tooth. The forms the law provisions take are straightforward, although the same problems um, we saw before of, of um, being laconic um, are there, and problems of decipherment are also complicating the matter. In its simplest form, a bodily injury provision in the laws of Ornama would look like this. If a man causes the falling out of the eye of a man, he shall weigh and deliver 30 shekels of silver. Now, I'm not gonna go through all of the laws individually, and many of them, as I said, have philological problems. But this charts them out for you, and you can see that each provision is concerned with a different body part, starting with some unidentified bone and ending with the eye. The order appears to violate the well-known principle of head-to-foot enumeration that we see in many scholarly compositions from Mesopotamia, medical treatises certainly, but also various lexical texts and omens and so forth. And note also that all the remedies for the bodily injuries in the laws of Ornama specify monetary compensation. Now the laws of Eshnunna, um, uh, from the ancient city of Eshnunna, dating to the early 1700s BC, um, provide us with a number of bodily injuries as well, all of which are again remedied by payments of, speci of specific monetary amounts. The qualifications here are not apparently articulated in, for in terms of the method or means of the assault, but now location and hence circumstance, in the street, in a fray, in a brawl. The first of the provisions of the laws of Eshnunna is a compound provision with the protasis and apodesis, the if and then clauses, fully formulated to start and then various body parts and their compensations are listed in a very laconic way. So if an awilam bites and severs the nose of an awilam, he shall weigh and deliver 60 shekels of silver. 
and then it becomes more terse. An eye, 60. A tooth, 30 shekels. An ear, 30 shekels. A slap to the cheek, he shall weigh and deliver 10 shekels of silver. You see here that all the parts of the head are in one provision. Nose, eye, tooth, ear, and a slap to the cheek, which is an insult to honor. The amounts of the penalty are in decreasing numbers, with the destruction of the nose and eye valued at 60 shekels, or a full mean of silver, and then the tooth, ear, and cheek slap at lower amounts, or lesser amounts. The provisions that follow after that then, um, as you see in this chart, turn away from the head into various limbs, as I've laid out for you here. Turning to the laws of Hammurabi, a collection that looms so large in the popular and legal imagination, we find a mixed system of both talion and monetary fines, the distinction largely conditioned by the status of the offender and the victim. When the offender and victim are of the same status, and here that means both free adult men, the laws of Hammurabi imposes a talionic response, an eye for an eye. When the victim is of a lower status, the laws stipulate a monetary payment. This is clear in the first four provisions, which really should count as one, um, and that's clear to anyone when you look at it and you see that the words, if a man, if an awilam is not repeated, it just goes, if he. Um, so um, these uh, first provisions consider the eye and a bone um, with the offense committed by an awilam upon another awilam, and then upon persons of lower social status. For equals, the punishment is strict talion, an eye for an eye. So if an awilam blinds the eye of an awilam, they shall blind his eye. If he should break the bone, they break his bone. Um, however, if you move down to a lower social status, if he blinds the eye of a mushkanum or breaks the bone of a mushkanum, he weighs and delivers silver. And if he should blind the eye of a slave or break the bone of the slave, he weighs and delivers one half the slave's value. The same distinction, talion for equals, monetary compensation for social inferiors, holds up in the next provisions which deal with injuries to the tooth, as you see here on this chart. Finally, in the Hittite laws um, from Anatolia, we have multiple versions and um, um, conscious revisions of these laws within the Hittite tradition. The older tradition dates to the 17th to 16th century BC, the later traditions to the 15th and to, through 11th centuries. One manuscript from the later tradition explicitly revises the laws. But even the older tradition retains an echo of a revision process, and several laws are prefaced by a remark such as, formerly they did X, but now they shall do Y. The Hittite laws are a fabulous resource for legal scholars looking at revision and reforms, but that's not our topic tonight. Um, our late colleague, Harry Hoffner, whose definitive edition of the Hittite laws I rely upon, wove together the early and late recensions into a single manuscript. That serves certain purposes well, but for our investigation, I needed to separate the manuscript witnesses. So I will be talking about the early and late versions of the Hittite laws um, separately. Now, the first of the bodily injury provisions in the Hittite laws presents a compound situation in which both the eye and tooth are considered. If anyone blinds the eye of a free person or knocks out his tooth, they used to pay 40 shekels of silver, but now he shall pay 20 shekels of silver. He shall look to his house for it. Note that the status of the victim is specified, 
free person. And the status of the offender is simply someone, anyone, likely a full free male citizen. Um, but I, we can't be sure, or I can't be sure. The provisions then that follow in the early recension with its explicit revisions continues with injuries to the head, arm, leg, nose, and ear. Note again that there is not a logical progression of body parts from top to bottom. And then the manuscript of the late version follows the same body part order, but there's a major difference. Um, in these provisions, oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, these provisions pay attention to the circumstances of inflicting the injury um, and to the permanence of the injury. Note also that the remedies are all expressed as monetary payments, not as talionic vengeance. As I indicated earlier, the term talion is from the Latin root talio, such, of such sort, the like, hence lex talionis, the law of like punishment, or to use the Latin root talio, the law of retalio, of retaliation. The expression comes from a provision in the 12 tables, a set of laws inscribed on 12 bronze tablets in 451 to 50 BC. Tablet eight deals with the bodily injuries. If he has broken a limb, unless he makes peace with him, there shall be talio. The 12 tables called for the punishment of talio only for breaking a limb for which the guilty party was to suffer retaliation, the identical breaking of the limb, unless, as it says, the adversaries agree on a financial composition. Note that neither the face nor its parts is considered in the 12 tables. Now, in spite of the Latin terminology, the principle of lex talionis is best known to us from the Hebrew Bible, where we find three repetitions of the principle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. These writings are contemporary with or at most no more than a couple of 100 years older than the Roman 12 tables. The earliest of the three is Deuteronomy, dating probably to the 6th century BC to the exilic period. Um, your eye shall not pity, it shall, not, it shall be life for life, tooth, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Um, this is in the context of false witnesses and false accusations. Exodus and Leviticus are probably a bit later, dating to the post-exilic Persian period. In Exodus, we have a longer passage, and this is in the context of a pregnant woman who um, suffers a miscarriage in the course of, of a, a brawl, and I don't want to talk about that part of it, but the context is there. When men strive together and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit departs from her, and yet no ason follows, the one who hurt her shall be fined according as the woman's husband shall lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. If any harm or ason follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And in Leviticus, he who kills a man shall be put to death. He who kills a beast shall make it good, life for life. When a man causes a disfigurement in his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has disfigured a man, he shall be disfigured. This is um, in the context of a, a little novella um, in which a man is sentenced to death uh, by stoning for blasphemy. 
Now, both the legal and theological commentators over the millennia have grappled with these provisions, both in their details, in their decipherment, and in their differences. And we can return to these if we have time in the Q&A. It's clear, though, that the passages loomed large, as we see from the prominence they assume in their later reflexes. So in the New Testament, um, we have a reflex of the uh, eye for an eye. And how is one to understand it? Was it considered at the time of Jesus to be primitive, barbaric, and savage? Or was it even then considered thoughtful and merciful? Now, Matthew, um, Jesus' disciple, included an eye for an eye problem as the fifth of his six antitheses, the six culminations um, in which Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, cites the Old Testament law and extends it or modifies it. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your coat, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who begs from you, and do not refuse him who would borrow from you. Matthew includes the eye for an eye among his six antitheses, the others, of course, being murder, adultery, divorce, false oaths and testimony, and love for your enemies because all involve person-to-person -person relations. It's clear by the expansion and examples that Matthew gives that his audience would certainly have understood an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to be a le literary legal metaphor for retaliation. The Quran, too, cites the biblical principle, and like Matthew, provides a modification or a charitable out. Although today, in the application of Islamic Sharia law, the Talionic principle, known as kitsats, may be applied literally. In the Torah, or we prescribe for them, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a nose for a nose, an ear for an ear, a tooth for a tooth, an equal wound for a wound. If anyone forgives this or forgoes this out of charity, it will serve as atonement for his bad deeds. Since the earliest rabbinic and church fathers' commentaries, the biblical passage and their echoes have been viewed not as bloodthirsty calls for vengeance, but rather as limits on such vengeance in two ways. First, it was said that the victim may demand no more than the eye, the tooth of the perpetrator, no matter the real economic or mental harm caused by the bodily injury. This notion of a limit was brilliantly used by Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice in Portia's speech reminding Shylock that he is entitled to a pound of flesh, but absolutely no more. Note the scales sitting there in the middle of the stage. Hence the idea of a limit on unbridled and rampant vengeance. The second way the rabbis and the church fathers interpret the expressions an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, even a life for a life, is that they are actually demands for monetary compensation and not for physical retaliation. The only rabbinic source that takes the injunction literally is the first uh, century Rabbi Eliezer. All other authorities understand the expression as a demand only for monetary compensation. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing in his Roman milieu, wrote that the Hebrew Bible passages gave the victim a choice of either literal vengeance or an appropriate monetary compensation, 
But modern scholars um, see Josephus's position as an articulation of the Roman practice of his time rather than an accurate reflection of anything going on in Judah. Um, and really, if the intention was that an eye for an eye was actually a demand for monetary compensation, why not say so? We saw earlier, even in the oldest law, um, laws that um, I showed you today, um, the 21st century laws of uh, Ornama, that there was never a problem assigning monetary value to individual body parts, and no problem in adjusting the values by the circumstances and factors, such as the status of the actors. And that now takes us to the contemporary moment, to 20th and 21st century scholarship. Before the turn of the 20th century, legal scholars had, no, had evidence only of the material from the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, the Roman 12 tables, the Quran, and barbarian laws of uh, European barbarian law. The biblical passages from the Old Testament involving uh, damages for bodily injuries were reinterpreted in light of the Roman Lex Talionis and investigated by legal historians citing parallels from the Germanic and barbarian laws, part of what legal and social historians call the self-help model, a history of which has been elegantly investigated by James Whitman at Yale Law School um, and also a graduate of our own um, Department of Social Thought. Per Whitman's arguments, the self-help model modifies the classic enlightenment social model contract, which holds that the early state formed in order to control an unruly and violent state of nature, and that individuals consent to surrendering some freedoms in return for this protection from the state. I'm being very simplified here. A key modification to the social contract model in the self-help model is that the violence found in the state of nature is not held to be chaotic, but rather that the violence was structured and ordered, and moreover, that the early state sought not simply to control violence, but to regularize and to institutionalize it. The self-help model also has a distinctly evolutionary bias to it that has been cited over and over in the legal history literature. For example, in what remains the most comprehensive edition and legal commentary to the laws of Hammurabi by Driver and Miles in 1952, we find the following evolutionary explanation. The natural remedy for an assault is retaliation. And talion was a fundamental principle of early law and was only gradually replaced by a system of fixed composition. And as we've seen now, it was not replaced. This notion is pervasive and is echoed frequently in scholarship. In a very recent work, the idea was referred to as a fundamental axiom. A number of fundamental axioms concerning global crime and punishment hold true over time. For example, as societies develop, there is a tendency for them to shift sanctions from physical punishment to financial compensation and imprisonment. No relationship to this gentleman who is a law professor at Michigan um, and a scholar of Norse um, and Viking law. Whether or not monetary compensation is a marker of more developed, quote unquote, society is certainly contestable. But I'd like to end our examination of Talion rather with a different question, and that is, how would an eye for an eye actually work in practice, taking into account all the incomplete and contradictory evidence of our ancient manuscripts? 
Almost all commentaries, ancient, medieval, or modern, take positions on whether or not talion is a marker of primitive stage of law, but rarely do they pick up on the logical flaw that both Ben Kingsley and Shakespeare's Portia articulated. While an eye for an eye sounds balanced and equitable in the abstract, any thought at all reveals the difficulties in achieving the balance in practice. How can the eye of a skilled goldsmith, for example, a mature young adult, be a fair reparation for the loss of the eye of, an, let's say, an elderly pig farmer? The consequences of the loss to each party would differ enormously in economic terms and could easily turn out to be excessive rather than equitable. I suggest, building on the work of James Whitman in particular, that the two eyes, the demanded body part of the offender and the lost body part of the victim, are not equal and never would have been thought equal. If the victim indeed demands his offender's body part, as the law provisions clearly allow, does that restore to him his prior economic or social situation? Of course not but it is a demand that gives the victim emotional or psychological satisfaction, revenge. And if that's what the victim wants or needs, the laws seem to acknowledge that need. But then the real heart of the matter arises, and that is what the offender needs or wants. It's likely to me that what the offender wants is to keep his eye intact. And so the offender is in a position of himself having to assign a value to his own intact eye. How much is the offender willing to offer to pay to keep his eye? It's not a matter of the offender saying, your eye had cataracts, and anyway, you're old and decrepit, so your eye is only worth a fraction of mine, and that's all I'm going to pay you. Rather, the offender says, my eye is worth a great deal to me, and I'm willing to pay you anything I can in order for you to allow me to keep my eye even if that sum is multiples greater than the value of your silly old eye that I knocked out in that brawl and you deserved it anyway. In this regard, remember that the English word to pay comes from Latin pecare, meaning to appease or pacify, giving us English peace. So by paying, you achieve peace. You settle accounts, pay debts, satisfy, and pacify the person who has a claim against you. Put a different way, the problems are not about primitive or advanced, but about the truly vexing problem of assigning a monetary value to what has been rendered valueless, an eyeball no longer in its socket, a tooth fallen out of the mouth. But the still intact body part of the offender does have value. And I maintain that, that the basis of any negotiation has to be the offender's intact and surviving body part. Now, there are certainly more questions relating to Lex Talionis that we could address, and I hope that you might raise some questions in the Q&A or over drinks after, um, and that you might bring some insights from your own studies and your own experiences to elucidate the problems. I haven't addressed the literary force of the verbless expression, an eye for an eye, a clause that has rhythm, cadence, and a euphony that suggests a strong rhetorical force, but I don't know of anyone who has discussed the literary fact force behind this and would appreciate suggestions too. So in conclusion, it is likely that the eye and tooth are so recognizably the quintessential expressions of bodily injury assaults and their remedies and have been in Western thought for 4,000 years precisely because they are such prominent parts of the head 
And because the head and the face represent the identification of the person, concerns over the integrity of the head are prevalent, including in such 21st century concerns as those over facial recognition software, for example. Mutilations of the head damage income earning power, they damage sexual desirability, identification, and honor. Whether your eye is gouged out or half your head hair is shaved or your upper lip is sliced off, the disfigurement diminishes and dehumanizes and perhaps ultimately makes it morally easier to inflict yet other assaults on the body. Thank you for allowing me to share my current project with you on the head. I could uh, not be comprehensive or exhaustive, but I hope I have been suggestive. Um, I want to thank you all for your attention tonight and wish you well. Thank you. Thank you.